All right, for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing something a little different in uh, terms of our sermon series. We're actually going to revisit some of our most viewed messages on the Journey YouTube channel that I've preached at Journey over the last 12 and a half years. And here's what I'm calling it. I'm calling it the Viewer's Choice Awards. <laughs> These four messages have been viewed over 125,000 times combined over the years. And obviously, they speak to something that people are eager to hear. The most viewed message I've ever preached, and I mean there isn't even a close second, is a message I did back in 2013. And a lot of you weren't even here in 2013. So it'll be the first time you've heard this message. It's on the life of Joseph, and not Joseph the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'm talking about Joseph, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose amazing story is told over the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to Genesis 37. Let me just say this about this particular message we're going to be sharing today. As of this week, this message has been viewed over 85,766 times. In fact, more people watch this message every week than the most recent message we post regardless of what it is. None of us are sure why that happened with this message, but those numbers don't lie. And so when I first learned about this a couple years ago, that led me to do a whole series on the life of Joseph called Turning Trauma into Triumph. Now, that's a little more recent series, and some of you remember that. We did that back in the fall of 2021. And if you would like to do a more deep dive into the remarkable life of Joseph, I encourage you to check out that entire series from last fall. Today, we're just going to do a quick, high-level flyover of the entire arc of Joseph's story, and we're going to learn how he went from the pit to the palace. Several years ago, Melinda and I were walking at Crane's Roost in Altamont Springs uh, one afternoon. It's one of our favorite places to walk in our area here. It was a beautiful day. It was 82 degrees Water was calm. And I said to Melinda as we're walking, I said, honey, if someone would have said to us when we were just starting out at 20 and 19, that's how old we were when we first got married. If someone would have said to us, when you two are in your 50s, you're going to be living in sunny central Florida. You're going to be pastoring a wonderful growing church that you're absolutely going to love. You're going to have two beautiful daughters that are married to great guys, and you're going to have three amazing grandsons. We both would have said, wow, that is great. Sign us up for that. But I said, honey, what if we were told, but I'm not going to tell you how the next 40 years go to get you there. <laughs> Melinda said, I'm glad I didn't know what was coming then. Joseph's story starts out with an incredible, albeit mysterious, dream. And in the end, Joseph literally and actually got to live out his dream exactly as he first saw it. But in between that dream's conception and the dream's fulfillment, well, that's quite a story. Are you ready to dive in? Joseph was the son of Jacob, also called Israel. He was the grandson of Isaac, and he is the great-grandson of 
Abraham, Joseph's story starts off with him as a teenager. To say that Joseph grew up in a dysfunctional home would be one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. To get a sense of the family dynamics in which he was raised, take a look at chapter 37, verse 2. It says, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them right out of the gate. We can see that Joseph did not grow up in what is often referred to as the traditional family structure. His father's wives is a dead giveaway. <laughs> Jacob is married to two sisters, Leah and Rachel, that he ended up having not only children with both of them, but with both of their young servant girls as well after both of his wives experienced a season of infertility. Two wives, bad idea. Because Jesus said no man can serve two masters. <laughs> two sister wives, really bad idea. Two... Two sister wives who both end up infertile and desperate. Well, you get your own section in the Bible for that one. So two wives and two bonus baby mamas and 12 children later. Not making this up. That's right there in the Bible. We pick up the story of Joseph and very early on. We discern some internal family dynamics that would eventually alter the trajectory of young Joseph's life. First, we learn that Joseph was his father's, Jacob's favorite child born from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And everybody in the family knew it. I mean, when the other boys would walk in the room, Jacob would ask them about the flocks or whether their chores were done. When Joseph walked into the room, old Jacob's eyes would light up and his face would beam. Joseph was the one that dad would brag about to his buddies. Jacob knew how Joseph was doing in school, who his teachers were, what his friends' names were. Jacob was a little fuzzy about the details of the other boys' lives in a hundred ways, in, in ways that most parents are not even aware of, but kids can smell a mile away Jacob's favorite for Joseph just oozed out of him. And then one day, Jacob's favoritism took a concrete form when he gave Joseph the robe. The Hebrew word to describe this garment is somewhat unclear. It may simply mean a tunic with long sleeves, sort of like a bathrobe. In the New International Version, we read, he made an ornate robe for him. A lot of us know the old King James version of the Bible says that he was given a coat of many colors that Dolly Parton wrote a great song about many years ago. The length and the color of the robe are not what's important about it. It's the quality and the distinctiveness of the gift. You see, Jacob had it custom made for Joseph by Giorgio Armani. <laughs> the rest of the boys got their clothes in the clearance section at Dollar General. I mean, seriously, it would be like on Christmas morning, you got 11 sons. Let's, let's, let's imagine that, but not for long. But let's say you got 11 sons, and you give 10 of them an Etch-A-Sketch, and the other one you give an iPad. <laughs> you can expect there's going to be problems. And that's exactly what everyone expected to happen, other than apparently old Jacob. He's somehow blind to his other son's hatred of their brethren. 
Here's what we read in Genesis 37:4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Like Joseph, maybe you grew up in a home where no one seemed capable of speaking a kind word. One that was full of criticism and negativity and harsh tones. And it was just this dysfunctional mess. And homes like that have a way of destroying dreams. But truthfully, Joseph doesn't help matters much. Here's what happens. One day, Joseph has a dream about being exalted and esteemed even more than he already is in the family. And you'd think that Joseph might have enough sense to keep quiet about this. You'd think Joseph might have noticed his brothers were dying on the inside. Not so much. Instead, he gathers his brothers together, his brothers who have no special robes, who've been deeply hurt by their father, who can't stand that he is daddy's favorite. He gathers them all together and he says, hey, fellas, want to hear about some of my dreams I've been having lately? And his brothers are thinking, sure, we would, Joseph. We're just hanging on hooks around here, waiting to hear about your cushy life. It's all about you, little bro. Of course, we want to hear about your self-aggrandizing dreams. Joseph is a little self-absorbed. He's a little clueless. He has a serious emotional intelligence deficit. And then he says, in one dream, we all had sheaves standing out in the field, but I had the biggest sheaf of all, and your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. I think this means one day I'm going to rule over you. I will command. You will submit to me. In another one of my dreams, all the stars and even the sun and the moon bowed down to me. Hey, I'm just brainstorming here, guys, but I think I may be the center of the universe. What do you guys think about that? (laughs) And the writer makes their response really clear. When his brother's said to him, do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. There is a complete and total alienation in this family, a total breakdown of community. I mean, it's a home where people get damaged in every conceivable way. And one day, his brothers are a long distance from home. They're tending to the family flocks. And Jacob sends Joseph, whom he loves, to check on his brothers who do not have so much love for Joseph. They actually have murderous hatred in their heart towards him. But old Jacob is so blind, he can't see it or he refuses to acknowledge it. The other brothers are far away from home with their flocks and Joseph goes to check on them. And in verse 18, here's what we're told. They saw Joseph coming a long way off. Now here's a question. How did they recognize it was Joseph when they couldn't see his face? He's wearing the robe, right? So in verse 19, notice, they don't say, here comes Joseph. Here comes our little brother. No, here's what they say. Here comes that dreamer. Here comes that dreamer. You see, when you envy someone, when someone has hurt you and you hate them, you don't like to think of them as a person with God-given dignity and worth. You don't even like to think of them as having a name. Here comes daddy's little dreamer. Here comes that arrogant would-be ruler. And you tend to dehumanize them and label them. So it's no surprise when we read what they're thinking as they see Joseph coming. Let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Ultimately, however, they decide to sell him into slavery instead of killing him. 
The brothers cover up what they did by taking his custom-made coat of many colors, killing a goat from the flock, dipping the coat in the goat's blood, showing it to their father. When Jacob sees it, he assumes his son has been killed. He grieves greatly. He refuses to be comforted. And that beautiful robe now becomes a death shroud that will hang over this family for years to come. So at the age of 17, Joseph is forcibly taken to a foreign country, Egypt. And he sold as a slave to one of the top Egyptian officials, a man in Pharaoh's court named Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. And yet after all this horrific abuse and brutal betrayal by his brothers, the strangest thing happens. We read this surprising statement in the scriptural account of Joseph. Now the Lord was with Joseph. Suddenly, the invisible but ever-present God intersects with the grim situation Joseph now finds himself in. And he appears at the most bizarre time. Joseph has gone from being the exalted one to being the enslaved one. His brothers literally threw him into a pit and then actually sold him to a band of passing strangers who happened to engage in human trafficking. Joseph, Joseph goes from being favored in the family to living in a distant land cut off from family while being subjected to the horrors of slavery. And yet in some mysterious way, God makes himself known to Joseph. He's not abandoned. He's not alone. This is very important. You see, in the ancient world, gods and every locale had their own gods. Gods were associated with particular places. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God of Israel, the God of the promised land. And yet, here he is in Egypt. God was showing Joseph, I'm not just a regional, territorial, tribal God. I'm everywhere. The God of Abraham is teaching the human race a new idea. You will find me in the last place you'd look for me. In the last moment you'd expect me, I'll be there with you. This covenant-making God is teaching us something deep and profound and wonderful about his character. It's this, I'm not just the God of a nation, I'm the God of the nations. And Potiphar, the man who purchased Joseph, quickly recognizes there's something special about young Joseph. This young man that he's acquired has some rare leadership gifts. He's got some administration. He's got some management capabilities. And it doesn't take long for Potiphar to put Joseph in charge of his whole household. In fact, the writer of Genesis says these great words, with Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph is totally trusted and he is given the keys to Potiphar's kingdom. And just when you think that things are about to take a turn for the better for Joseph, the story takes a desperate housewife's turn. <laughs> Mrs. Potiphar, who would almost have certainly been a very beautiful Egyptian woman, perhaps a trophy wife because of Potiphar's powerful position in Pharaoh's cabinet, at first becomes infatuated with Joseph, and then she becomes inflamed with Joseph, and Mrs. Potiphar suddenly becomes Mrs. Pot O' Fire <laughs> whenever Joseph is in the room. And the scriptures tell us Joseph was well-built and handsome. And that's the Bible way of saying Joseph was a hottie. <laughs> and Mrs. Pot O' Fire makes him her pursuit. And she gets quite graphic. 
She says to him, come to bed with me. And that's kind of the PG translation of her proposition. In the original Hebrew, it's a very crash proposal, and it doesn't leave much to the imagination. And yet here is how Joseph remarkably responds to her. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And the text says that though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He didn't even want to be around her. We had a saying in Kentucky where I grew up, if you don't intend to go in the house, stay off the front porch. And Joseph did his best to keep a healthy distance from her. So here's what we see for Joseph so far. Here's his story so far. Pain and disappointment. He had big dreams. Now he's a slave. Major disappointment. But even in the midst of this disappointment, Joseph is faithful. You see, the key word in the life of Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, was faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The key word in the story of Joseph is faithful. And so here's what happens to so many of us when we see disappointment in our life. We have a way of allowing our disappointment to justify our disobedience. You ever notice that? We say, well, God doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the deal. I mean, after all, look where I am. This wasn't, this wasn't how my story is supposed to unfold. And because God has seemingly let me down over here, then I'm going to do what I want to do over there. And we allow our disappointment to justify our disobedience. And I think that's especially true when it comes to the area of sexual sin and temptation. In the context of Joseph's story, this is where his first intense temptation comes. And I think that's true today. That disappointment can justify disobedience, especially in this area of sexual sin. Many of you who in Apopka and Lake County and online, you're single. And maybe you thought you, by now you would have found that special someone. You thought by now God would have connected you to the right person. You've tried e-harmony and Christian mingle and blind dates set up by your weird cousin. <laughs> and you've tried to follow God's standard. And you said, hey, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm committed to doing things God's way. But let's be honest, the longer he takes, the more tempting it is to lower your standard. The more disappointed you become, the more easily you find yourself justifying disobedience. Two buddies, one married, one single, were talking about a survey that asked Christian singles, what's the number one temptation you struggle with? 90% of them said sexual sin. The single guy said to the married guy, well, I know what the other 10% struggle with. What's that, his married friend asked. The single man responded, lying. <laughs> and I think there is this tendency to feel like, okay, God, you're not going to come through for me in this area of my life. And that means it's okay for me to do what I want to do and not do things the way you want them done. And that's not just true for those who are single, but for those who are married. The only thing worse than being disappointed in single is being disappointed in married, right? It's like the guy who said, when I got married, I had an ideal and I got into an ordeal. Now I want a new deal. Someone said, the only thing worse than being alone is wishing that you were. And so this happens in marriages. A wife does not remember the last time she felt loved, listened to, or honored by her husband. And so it feels somehow okay to flirt at the office or reconnect with an old boyfriend online. 
A husband is married to a wife and she makes sexual intimacy with him sound like a chore that's somewhere between doing the dishes and folding the laundry. And so he justifies logging on to his secret websites because he's got needs. And in our moments of disappointment, we have a tendency to justify our disobedience. Listen, Joseph's story is not going how he thought it would. The plot's not unfolding as he imagined. And if anybody could have rationalized a little fling, Joseph surely could. He could have said, hey, my mother died when I was young. My father overindulged me and sheltered me, gave me an unrealistic view of life. My brothers hated me and abused me. I've been wrongly sold into slavery. Sleeping with my boss's wife could be something I could leverage later on for a better position. I've been deprived of so much in my life. On and on, he could have justified, but he doesn't. He's faithful to God in the midst of his disappointment. That is the hallmark of Joseph's story. And so Joseph says to Potiphar, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Well, some might say, how could God do such a thing to Joseph? He has these big dreams. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. He's serving as a slave with no rights. He'll probably never be married. And yet Joseph is faithful in the midst of his disappointment. And one day, Potiphar's wife kicks her sexual aggression up a notch. Once again, she says, come to bed with me. This time she grabs him by the coat and she pulls and he slips out of it and he runs off and she's left standing there humiliated, but with his coat in her hands and suddenly she cries, rape. And security comes in and she has his coat. And to the outside observer, it seems like a pretty open and shut case, right? Here's what's interesting. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. A better translation of the word bodyguard would be executioner. Potiphar, in reality, was the chief executioner for Pharaoh. In other words, he killed people for a living. He had all kinds of creative ways to end people's lives. He was not a person who would just have thrown a slave in prison who tried to rape his wife. I think what the text seems to infer is that Potiphar trusted Joseph more than he trusted his wife. He doesn't want to kill him, but he's got to do something to punish him. So Joseph is thrown in prison and Potiphar spares his life while also saving some face. And when I say prison, it was really a pit. It's a hole where Joseph is changed, at least initially. And he's done nothing to deserve this. He's refused to sin with his boss's wife. He wasn't disobedient to any of Potiphar's orders. He wasn't rebellious. He wasn't unfaithful. And yet he still has to deal with this devastating disappointment. Wasn't his fault. It was just his life. He was a victim of somebody else's sinful decisions and horrible choices. He started off with a dream, but then he became a slave. And we think, well, that's as bad as it gets. I mean, what could be worse than being a slave? How about being a slave and a prisoner? That's what happened to Joseph. And so here's the question we ask when we reach this point in the story. Where is God in the midst of such disappointment? 13 more years is going to go by before Joseph's story takes a turn. Where's God in the midst of this disappointment? Some of you, <clears throat> you're in a chapter of your story right now. And this is the question you're asking. I mean, to John, who's on his third round of chemo, after losing his wife to cancer just a few years ago, he's, he's saying, where's God in the midst of that? To Jackie, whose husband left her for another woman while she's pregnant with her first child. Where's God in the midst of that? To Heather, who grew up being abused and now struggles with cutting. 
to Jane, who takes care of her 16-year-old daughter who was paralyzed after she was hit by a drunk driver? Where's God in the midst of that disappointment? Or maybe even a better word, devastation. Where's God when you're in the pit or in the pit again? Well, strangely enough, the text says exactly the same thing as when Joseph first became a slave. It says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And once again, Joseph is learning in the song that we've often sung here. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. Sometimes the place of greatest fear, the place of greatest hurt, the place of greatest pain becomes the place of greatest presence. And I'm wondering, are you in a hard place right now? Are you in a pit? Maybe it's a troubling relationship pit. Maybe it's a workplace pit. Maybe it's a where you go to school pit. Maybe it's a worry about your health pit or a money pit, and it's causing you to despair. It would have been so easy for Joseph to give in to despair, but he discovers in the last place he'd look for him, God is there. And there's a, This is real important. Take a look at this. God may not move you to a new place, but he can put a new you in your old place. God may not move you to a new place, but he can put a new you in your old place. Well, the warden of the prison soon sees in Joseph what Potiphar saw in Joseph. And so the warden puts Joseph in charge of the entire prison, and one day... There are two prisoners of note that are put under Joseph's care. One is the cupbearer to the Pharaoh. This is the guy that tastes the food and drinks the wine before Pharaoh eats and drinks of it to make sure it's not poison. And the other is a chief baker for the palace. So one can safely assume an assassination attempt against Pharaoh was suspected, thus landing the royal cupbearer and the royal baker both in prison at the same time. And one night, they both have very explicit dreams. They are really more than dreams. They, they mean something and they know it. And so they share their experience with Joseph, and the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets it, and he says, Mr. Cupbearer, in three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your old position. And the cupbearer promises, hey, when that happens, I'm going to remember you, Joe, I promise. And the Pharaoh's baker comes in and tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets it, and he says, Mr. Baker, in three days, the Pharaoh is going to lift up your head from off your body and hang your corpse on a pole. And the baker says, that's the last time I tell you one of my dreams. <laughs> and three days later, it all happens just as Joseph said it would. One is released, the other is executed. But then we read these words that add incredible insult to Joseph's many injuries. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Can you believe that? I mean, listen, we all forget on occasion. We forget names and dates and anniversaries and birthdays, our keys, our wallets. Sometimes to forget is human. Sometimes it's just plain selfishness because we tend to forget when it's not to our advantage to remember. The cupbearer was so relieved to be reinstated to his royal position, perhaps especially in light of what happened to his buddy, the baker, that he didn't even want a hint of his recent incarceration to enter Pharaoh's mind. And so two more years pass, and Joseph is stuck in prison. But then one day... Pharaoh himself has a disturbing dream. Nobody can interpret it. And he's greatly troubled by it, so much so that he starts, uh, he's going to start removing royal heads from the royal staff if somebody can't give him the interpretation. And suddenly the cupbearer has an epiphany. He remembers Joseph. How convenient. 
And he says, oh, great Pharaoh, there's a man I met in prison a couple years back. What was his name? Jack, Jerry, Joseph. Yeah, that's it. And as I recall, he's pretty good at this dream interpretation stuff. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph in and he tells Joseph his dream. The most powerful man in the world is telling this slave prisoner his dream. And the scriptures tell us that God gives Joseph the exact interpretation for the dream and Pharaoh realizes the message is from God. And here's what we read in chapter 41. He says to his cabinet, can anyone find, can, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Translated, you are the second most powerful man in the world as of right now. And in one sweeping decree from the world's most powerful dictator, Joseph goes from the pit to the palace. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land. What just happened? He was a prisoner. He was a slave. Now he's deputy Pharaoh. He's vice president of Egypt. Second most powerful man in the world. One little side note detail. I'll give this to you quick. I'd love to point this out because I just love these little details in the word of God. Notice that Pharaoh ordered a new coat for Joseph. Look at this. Chapter 41, verse 42. He, Pharaoh, dressed him in robes of fine linen. Now you do know Joseph had lost two robes. The one his daddy gave him was ripped off in disgust. The one Potiphar gave him was ripped off in lust. But then God gave him a new one that came with a divine trust. I love those little details in the Bible. Let's go on. And so God uses Joseph to execute this conservation plan that saves millions of people from starvation in this severe famine. It's a seven-year famine. And it doesn't just affect all of Egypt. It also spreads to the outer regions. And eventually it affects Canaan, the home place of Joseph. Joseph's family has money. They have resources. What they don't have is food. There's no grain to buy. So here's what happens. Joseph's father, Jacob, sends Joseph's 11 older brothers to the land of Egypt to try to get grain for their starving families because they've heard that Egypt has a stockpile of grain. Oh, by the way, because of their little brother and his wisdom that God gave him, and they had food for the famine. It's been 22 years since they sold their little brother off into slavery. And they have no idea that this exalted man, this powerful official in Egypt, this deputy Pharaoh, is their hated little brother. They don't know that. And when they show up, the scripture says they bow down before him. And we remember the dream of Joseph. Joseph immediately recognizes them. You know why? You don't forget the faces of abuse. He's overcome with emotion. And he goes off to weep privately. But he doesn't tell them who he is. He does a strange thing. First, he accuses them of being spies. They deny it. We're not spies. We're just your average run-of-the-mill nomadic family. We got one more brother at home and our dad, and that's all there is. We're harmless people, we promise. And Joseph keeps up this strange charade of hiding his identity and probing their family background, and he invites them into his private residence, and he, he tests them further, and he finally gets to the point he can't hold it in any longer. And in Genesis chapter 45, here's what we read. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Can you imagine? And Joseph said to his brothers, 
come close to me. When he had done so, he said, and he, he blew the lid off the best kept secret in Canaan. I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives. Take a look at this phrase. That God sent me. That God sent me ahead of you. Think about that. Everything Joseph has been through, this is what it's all been about. Being favored and hated. Being brutalized and betrayed. Being sold and then sold out. Being framed and forgotten. Being remembered and elevated. Being in charge of everything except the deeply suppressed emotions of an abused teenager. All of it leads to this magnificent moment that changed not only a family, not only a nation, but all nations from this time forward forever. And here's what the life of Joseph teaches us and why so much space is dedicated to telling his epic story in the scriptures. And here it is. If your take on God is right, your take on life can be right no matter what life takes. Let me say that again. If your take on God is right, your take on life can be right no matter what life takes. Joseph had so much taken away from him. Life took his family, his status, his freedom, his reputation. And as we read these accounts, we can't help but wonder why did bitterness never seem to take root in his heart? It's because Joseph had a take on God that circumstances couldn't take away. And at the end of his life, one more time, he summarizes his take on God that would sustain him no matter what life took from him. It's found in the closing chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. He's talking with his brothers who are fearful that Joseph will now retaliate because their father Jacob has just died. And so one more time, he reassures them with these remarkable words. He said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. And it is in these words that we can see most clearly the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, points us to the story of Jesus, the greatest descendant of Jacob. Centuries after Joseph's brutal betrayal by his brothers, another one came from the line of Jacob to his own, and his own received him not. Another one was sold for silver. Another one was stripped naked, abandoned to die, and cried out in the dark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's a key difference between Joseph and Jesus. Jesus was Joseph was involuntarily turned into a savior through his suffering, but Jesus voluntarily came and chose to suffer as our savior. So today, if you feel like you're in a deep pit, and you're crying out, why? And you feel alone and you feel abandoned. Friend, let me tell you, you are not. Christianity is the only faith, religion, that claims that God has suffered for you and with you and died alone so you would never be alone. The Lord was with Joseph and he is with you and me today even in a greater way through the gift of the Holy Spirit that never leaves us and never forsakes us and that's what we need when we suffer more than we need anything else because friends if your take on God is right your take on life can be right no matter what life takes amen stand with me let's stand together
Father, I thank you. You've given us the ability to be able to gather today and just in a brief way walk through this amazing life of this man named Joseph. Man, I look forward to meeting him in heaven one day. And I thank you, Father, for the faithfulness that he displayed even as you took him from a pit to the palace. He was faithful. I pray we would be faithful people as well. And thank you that his life so wonderfully points to the greatest descendant of Jacob, the Lord Jesus. And who comes to us and he says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And we thank you for that promise. We thank you for that anchor. And we lift our voices right now. And the word that we say to all of that is hallelujah. And we want to raise that right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.